From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my good friend, co-host, and producer Craig Williams. Craig, how are you doing? I'm doing just dandy. How are you, Michael? <laughs> I'm doing fine, too. I'm swell. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of my best uh, frontier cowboy saying, and dandy came out for some reason. <laughs> okay. I don't think John well, Wayne would approve, but... I think in those days, listen to dandy like a, a city slicker or something. That's what we'll go with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, well, and, and the reason Craig brought up uh, Frontierland is because that's what we're talking about today. Um, Craig and I are going to explore the rootin' tootin' wild west of the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland. And since many of the opening day's attractions for this realm were adaptions of Disneyland attractions, I'm not going to go too deeply into the history of their development and design on this show. If you would like to learn more about the origin of these attractions, I'd encourage you to listen to my 60 Years of Disneyland series on the Disney Plug podcast, Disneyland Edition. And there is a list of Disneyland history episodes on the Disboards, and Craig always includes that in our show notes. So, Craig, do you have your, um, your, your 10-gallon hat? In your six shooters? I do. And, you know, it's even more fitting. I, I just told you right before uh, we started recording this, but I, you know, I feel like I'm in the West right now with the, the drought that we're going through here in Orlando. So it, it's just the perfect timing for this. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, we now, it, I was telling you, it's, we've had nothing but rain. <laughs> so we've, we've switched weather patterns between my kingdom and yours. Exactly. So, <laughs> yes. But, but and I do think you're wearing chaps. That's a nice touch, but I, I think you're supposed to wear jeans or something under them. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's late. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, let's begin our exploration by going back to the opening day of Disneyland and remembering Walt Disney's dedication speech that introduced us to Frontierland and the home of cowboys, pioneers, and Native Americans. Walt said, Frontierland, it is here that we experience the story of our country's past, the color, romance, and drama of frontier America as it developed from wilderness trails to roads, riverboats, railroads, and civilization. A tribute to the faith, courage, and ingenuity of our hardy pioneers who blazed the trails and made this progress possible. Now, when Walt designed Disneyland, the realms or lands he selected for the park reflected the popular cultural and film genres of the early 1950s. Um, the American West was a popular theme for books, film, and television well into the early 1970s. So Frontierland is rooted in the history, romanticism, and Hollywood idealism of the American West. 
So as a result of Frontierland, the Frontierlands of both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom have not seen the reimagining upgrades and overlays the other lands of these parks have gone through. And then, Craig, that was something you were commenting on before the show, that at the Magic Kingdom, this is the one that pretty much has stayed static. Yeah, you know, I uh, my first trip that I can actually remember being on uh, was in 1992, and I, you know, Splash Mountain had already uh, opened by that point, and so I genuinely cannot remember uh, Frontierland being wildly different than it is now mm-hmm. through all the years of going. Yeah, and Disneyland has seen a lot of changes. We we saw you know the removal of Mine Train through Nature's Wonderland because that was an enormous area. But then we saw our Frontierland sort of chopped up. Uh, you know it it rev- it went all around the rivers of America and but. Part of it was removed for, uh, you know, critter country, yeah. you know, bear country that became critter country. Part of it was removed for New Orleans Square. So our frontier line is actually smaller uh, than it was, you know, when on opening day when it was the largest um, land. Oh, yeah. No, I, I know we talked about it in, um, in the... I can't remember which episode it was in this, but when we talked about the the movies and documentary and music recommendations uh, in our Disney 101, I brought up the Disneyland people and places. And that's like the prime example to see just how expansive Frontierland was in early Disneyland. It's absolutely insane. I mean, to the point that they had what they had, the pony rides and stuff going through there, too, where they had some animals in there. Yeah, they had the burrows. I have a photo of myself and my mother on there when I was not quite two years old on the burrows. And uh, there were Conestoga wagons. Yeah. There there were the stagecoaches. There were, you know, going through the same area that the mine train through nature's wonderland was going into as well there was there was a lot of activity it's funny it was it was also a world on the move but it was uh the old western transportation yeah yeah it it was a really busy busy place so uh and 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 i loved it because again you know i when i grew up uh, westerns were all over television and there were a lot of Western films. John Wayne was in his heyday. And uh, so you know, Frontierland, when I was a little boy, was one of my favorite realms. You know, we played cowboys and Indians and, yeah. and, and, and cops and robbers and things like that. And then science fiction started to creep in with, um, you know, shows like Star Trek and Lost in Space. But, uh, yeah, no, but I, still... I think know. still even to this day, I think, uh, you know... I, I probably would have said that Frontierland was my favorite land when mm-hmm. I was growing up. You know, I remember having, I remember having my uh, coonskin cap and mm-hmm. all that. So, um, I it, it does it just has such a great appeal to it. And um, you know, in in the case of our Frontierland, has some fantastic attractions inside of it too so uh, it just it has it still has its staying power today mm-hmm. so and i think out of the realms between disneyland and magic kingdom these are the two that are probably the closest 
uh, in similarity, yeah. I think, uh, of the two kingdoms. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, the, definitely there are different charms about both of them. Um, you know, where our Big Thunder feels often distant, yours feels close and intimate. And I, I really enjoy that. Um, and, you know, I the the other part, I know we're going to come up on it. So, but, um, you know, I, I do hate the fact that ours, it just, it doesn't feel ever like you, it doesn't feel like you actually traveled to this frontier land where yours does, um, uh, be, mostly because we don't have an actual entrance to frontier mm-hmm. land it just happens and if you come in from you know if you come in from Adventureland through one of the couple entrances you just kind of are thrown right in and if you come in from liberty square it's just instant transition so that's you know both both are very similar but both have a little bit better aspects about them but mm-hmm. that's that's what makes it worthwhile being able to go and see the uniqueness of both lands I agree. Absolutely. Now, when the Magic Kingdom opened on October 1st, 1972, there were three attractions in Frontierland. The Frontierland Shootin' Arcade, Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes, and Country Bear Jamboree. Now, on May 1st, 1972, the Walt Disney Railroad's Frontierland Station opened. And you might be asking yourself, why were there only three attractions in Frontierland on opening day? And the answer is because there were large plans for Frontierland in the next phase of the Magic Kingdom, which included Mark Davis's Big Thunder Mesa with the Western River Expedition that we'll talk about in a moment. Now, visitors to the Magic Kingdom, as Craig was saying, will notice that unlike Disneyland, there is no dedicated entrance to Frontierland. And one of the reasons for this is because the United States Bicentennial was was just a few years away in 1976. So the designers decided to have a bridge from the hub to the patriotic Liberty Square, which would then lead guests to a much more expansive frontier land. So, so it is a very different experience. Yeah, and I... You know, I, I personally, I dislike it. I love Liberty Square, but uh, going to Disneyland and seeing the, the fort outside of, you know, outside leading into Frontierland, it's just, it is so cool. So mm-hmm. I, I wish that we had something like that. But. And, and one of the things I I like about our layout, and, and both layouts have their positives and negatives, Um Ours, you enter, and it's not as narrow as Adventureland, thank goodness. Um, yeah. It's wide, but it's intimate. And then when you get to the, um, you know, to the Golden Horseshoe, it opens up. And then you have this wide expanse with, you know, the Mark Twain and the Columbia dock right right there in front yeah. of you in Rivers of America. And then it just all opens up around the Rivers of America. So you do have that feeling of an expansive um, West. Yeah, absolutely. Still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so that's neat. And and with... Um, and I think with the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland, it's, it's more of a feeling that it just sort of rolls on and on. 
yeah, no, it, know, expansive it, in that way. It does. And, uh, you know, this is probably the greenest area of the park um, where you have all those trees that just kind of kind of keep it contained, um, mm-hmm. you know, right especially on that path that walks right along the the edge of the river it's it is very kind of cornered off so um i I never really thought about it in that way though is the comparison between disneyland's opening up and ours just going on and on and on but yeah that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. now the magic kingdom's frontierland moves guests from the 1770s to the 1880s so the buildings closest to the hub um harken back to st louis in the 1840s um the diamond horseshoe saloon is reminiscent of the luxurious dance hall days of the day and as we move west through Frontierland, the geographic inspiration for the decor moves with us. Um, Grizzly Hall, the home of the Country Bears Jamboree, is a Northwoods Union Hall. And north of Grizzly Hall is the Rivers of America with its rafts and riverboat taking guests deep into the wilderness. In the center of the Rivers of America is Tom Sawyer Island, which opened in 1973 and is very similar to the original Tom Sawyer Island in Disneyland before it was rethemed with a pirate overlay. And the island is accessible only by raft, and it's based on the 1876 book The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. And this island, I I love Tom Sawyer Island because it provides a wilderness playground of caves, rocks, footpaths, you know, the Barrel Bridge, the Suspension Bridge, and Fort San Clemens um, originally that can make guests forget they are in the middle of a theme park. Yeah. And Thunder Mesa was intended to have been constructed in the area where Big Thunder Mountain Railroad is now located, and and even beyond. And it would have served as the nature's wonderland area of the Magic Kingdom. And this area continued the historical progression of the western town of Frontierland towards its transition to the Spanish-themed Caribbean Plaza of Adventureland. But this historical progression was interrupted with the construction of Splash Mountain in 1992 that attempted to combine the southern stories of Uncle Remus and Br'er Rabbit with the surrounding Old West theme. Now, the Davy Crockett Explorer canoes were powered by guests as they paddled their large canoes around the rivers of America. And the canoes required two cast members and held 20 guests each. And the attraction was closed in 1994 as part of an initiative by Michael Eisner to close high-cost, low-capacity attractions. Interestingly, though, the Davy Crockett Explorer canoes continue to operate at the original Disneyland, at Tokyo Disneyland as the Beaver Brothers Explorer canoes, and at Shanghai Disneyland, the newest park, as the Explorer canoes. So I, I think this was just a tremendous loss. Yeah, and no, I I never got to do it. So, um, as you mentioned, though, it still continues to operate at Disneyland and the other places. It, you know, is it because of gators? Is that why it actually Mm -hmm. closed down? Is that they were worried about having people in canoes where gators were swimming? Because we do know, I mean, Disney tries to keep them out as much as possible, but they are in the rivers of America here at Walt Disney World. So. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them in there. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it was always that it was because of money, and but they still they still have the cast member canoe races. 
Yeah. So, unless it's, they don't mind losing cast members to the Gators, I don't know. <laughs> well, cast members, you know, there's always a new college program kid that can come yeah. along. That's true. So, um, but it's too bad. Because one of the things, and one of the things about Rivers of America is, is, is its lack of busyness. Um, we'll, we'll get into more what else used to be on Rivers of America that's missing from both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. I, but I, that busy river feel is is sort of gone, no, it, I think, from the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, and I, I, I love the canoes. Um, it is one of those things to me when it is running at Disneyland because I've been there a couple times of the year where uh, it was considered uh you know slow season so they weren't even doing the canoes at all um but if if they are up and actually uh actually operating i i always do the canoes mm-hmm. um yeah it's just the way they belittle you as you make your <laughs> way around the rivers and it's such an interesting perspective i mean yeah it's great seeing it's great seeing the rivers of america from you know high up on the on the riverboat or um even on the columbia at a different angle but being that close to the the water as you move around and and see it it's it just puts things in a complete different perspective it's a it's a huge loss to not have them at magic Mm -hmm. kingdom and and you definitely appreciate how large the ships are you know the Liberty Bell or the Mark Twain yeah. and Columbia. When you are at water level and you are close to those ships, yeah, so, or yeah. boats. Yeah. Now, in um, May 1972, the Frontierland Railroad Station uh, opened, but it isn't where a lot of folks today might think it was. It actually opened a few feet northwest of the Pecos Bill Cafe. The Frontierland station marked the westernmost point of Frontierland for nearly 19 years and provided the only alternate point for boarding or disembarking the trains until 1988, when a third station opened in what was then Mickey's birthday land, you know, and is now the Fantasyland station. Mm-hmm. Um, the original Frontierland station was a small building with gingerbread molding on its roof lines and scrolled woodwork on its facade. Now, most guests accessed the station by ascending steps that raised them about five feet above Frontierland street level, and wheelchair guests entered along a winding exit pathway connected with the north end of the structures. The building's interior consisted of a single open-air room with benches for guests to rest as they waited for the next train. Uh, There were a set of posters on the walls perpetually denoting that the service was on schedule. A covered loading platform extended south of the station towards Caribbean Plaza, and the train approached the station from the tunnel built into the berm that segments the two Pirates of the Caribbean show buildings. And that was the true western end of the Magic Kingdom's guest areas. So guests waiting for the train may have wondered what was beyond the climbing pines on the hill. And what was there was most likely not so magical for guests. As on the other side was the collection and incineration point (laughs) for the park's um, vacuum-operated AVAC trash system. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... 
<laughs> anyway, now the grassy area in front of the train station was the first setting for the Frontierland Stuntmen's Robbery and Gunfight Exposition. And this brief show revolved around the Frontierland Marshal's arrest of Cactus Jack Slade and his gang for robbing the depot's safe. And after some fist-pounding, knife-slashing, and rifle-blasting, the marshal triumphed over the bad guys and recovered the money. Uh, The summer season spectacle began in the mid-1980s, and by the summer of 1988, the show had moved down the street, where it was staged in front of the Trading Post and Country Bear Jamboree. And that move allowed for the show to include fight scenes on the rooftops, but the final showdown took place in 1994. I always love these stunt shows. I think it adds character. I don't remember know. ever seeing it, but it sounds awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, you know, uh, just a little bit of street atmosphere almost to the, to the land to just give it a little extra authenticity. So mm-hmm. it's something they could could still use. Yeah, and they did similar kinds of things at Disneyland as well. And and they still do shows, you know, out in front of the um, Golden Horseshoe yeah. review that are similar to this. Yeah. So Now, just north of the rail, um, road station was a vast expanse of grass sandwiched between the train tracks and the rivers of America. And this land was dotted with pines and a few totem poles. And this was the intended location of Thunder Mesa, and the Western River Expedition. When plans for that attraction fell through, the northern part of the land became the site for Big Thunder Mountain, which opened in 1980. The grassy plain between Thunder Mountain and Frontierland Station remained untouched, but it provided access for the road, allowing the Magic Kingdom's parades to exit from the park. Now, in 1992, the original Frontierland station was demolished, and a new station was built on a portion of the grassland that provided the parade's exit route. So, a new parade exit route was relocated south, directly through the center of what used to be the old station. And all this was done to make room for the construction of Splash Mountain between the Pecosville Cafe and Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Now, the Pecosville Cafe has a framed document outlining an abbreviated tale of Pecos Bill. It also has the Pecos Bill Code of the West. Now, you menfolk out there should read this for good advice about what not to do in front of the women, folk, and children. So, uh, Craig, have you ever um, read the Pecos Bill Code of the West? I actually didn't know that I was in there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, respect the land, defend the defenseless, and don't never spit in front of women and children. So well, there's plenty more vile acts that go on inside Pecos <laughs> Bill than spitting in front of women and children. So, are you referring to the food? <laughs> I, yeah, hey, the the food's good, but when you when you throw a Toppins bar out there, you know people are just going to lose their minds. So. Oh, what kind of bar? Uh, toppings. Oh, toppings bar. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yes, they do. I know that's the big draw is the toppings bar. It is. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I'm not. As, I don't get as excited about topping supplies. <laughs> it's a simple folk. That's, that's what we enjoy. <laughs> well, it is the old west. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, now the Diamond Horseshoe Review was one of the most popular attractions at the Magic Kingdom from the day the saloon doors swung open in 1971. It was very similar to the Golden Horseshoe Review in Disneyland. In fact, one of the stars of the Disneyland show, Wally Bogue, appeared in the Magic Kingdom show for its first three years. At Rope Drop, guests would rush to the Disneyana Collectibles Shop on Main Street, USA to obtain tickets for the review until tickets stopped being required on April 7, 1995. The interior of the traditional dance hall had an ornate stage for the performers. There were tables and chairs on the main floor, with, and seating was also available in the balcony area. And this fun show featured plenty of singing, can-can dancing, and corny wise-cracking jokes. Some of the performers were known to climb down into the audience um, for some up-close and personal interaction. And the highlight was a Pecos Bill cowboy who managed to get most of his teeth knocked out of his mouth seven or eight times a day, and then it spit him out into the laughing crowd. Now, over the years, the show saw a number of name changes. Diamond Horseshoe Jamboree, Diamond Horseshoe Saloon Review, before its final performance in 2003. The Diamond Horseshoe shared a kitchen with the Adventureland Veranda, and once the latter eatery closed, that's when the Diamond Horseshoe menu was scaled back. And at one time, the show was sponsored by Del Monte. So did you ever see the Diamond Horseshoe Review? Craig? I don't believe that I have. Um, I, I honestly, I, I probably did, uh, but I don't have uh, a recollection of it. So the last time when I was in, um, when I was in Disneyland with my dad, he, you know, he w- when we went into Golden Horseshoe, so he could see inside there. He he had mentioned, you know, the the show and that and was asking all about it so either he saw the golden horseshoe when he was young and was still and still remembering that or we saw the diamond horseshoe and he was just assuming that the same thing happened at both but um it's it's very possible that i did and i just Mm -hmm. don't remember it but you know i'm i it's been a long time for me now gosh 19 (laughs) I, i don't even know what year it is but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this, well, the the Golden Horseshoe review was just, it was one of those things that every time you went to Disneyland, you had to see it. Yeah. It was just great. It was so sad when they closed it. And, you know, Wally Bogue and, and all, all of them were just, just terrific performers. Everyone, it seemed fresh. You know, it was long. It still holds the record for the longest running show. Yeah. And, but it seemed like they were doing it for the first time every time. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's too bad. I I wish they would, you know, they brought back a a smaller version of it, you know, a few years ago as, uh, you know, one of those, uh, I forget what they called it. It was one of those, you know, they gave it some cute name, Fun Time Magic or something. Uh, limited know. Time Magic. Limited Time Magic. Yeah. And um, I, I just wish they would bring back the show. I mean, it's been gone long enough that it would play to a new audience. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, I, I would love to see it. So, yeah. so. they need to get now on for, it. <laughs> 
Now, for a time, the saloon was used for photo opportunities of Toy Story characters Woody, Jesse, and Bullseye. And they have, they've had a variety of shows, such as Goofy's Country Dance and Jamboree and the Happy Haunted Horseshoe. And I think these days now, the Diamond Horseshoe is open, serving an all-you-care-to-eat Western-style lunch and dinner. Yeah, so. which is uh, different because before it was just really underutilized. Um, they would have, they would uh, open it up during peak season for only like three or four hours of the day, um, and serve the just the most embarrassing sandwiches and other theme park fare. So, mm-hmm. uh, r- really, you know, a- anything is an upgrade from using it for just a select amount of time and then dance parties with characters. So, mm-hmm. But there's no entertainment or anything in there right now? I don't believe so. Um, oh, that's I know, too bad. I know Pete did this one uh, uh, when they debuted it. I still haven't... Um, I, I still haven't experienced it. So, I, I mean, I think the piano's still up on stage, so I'm, I'm guessing they still have some form of entertainment with it but hmm. i'm not sure what the what the full scale of that is okay so yeah i'm i'm curious to check that out sometime now um country bear jamboree stretches all the way back to walt disney's love of skiing and winter sports uh he invested in the sugar bowl ski resort and a ski run still bears his name as mount disney in 1960, Walt Disney was the chairman of pageantry for the 1960 Winter Olympics at Squaw Valley, California. And after the Games, Walt Disney felt that the creation of a family-oriented ski resort would be popular and help diversify his company. So Walt initiated a search of existing and potential sites around the United States as a location for his ski resort. And in 1965, the U.S. Forest Service requested public bids for the development of Mineral King in the Sequoia National Forest in California. And it was believed that this area had the potential to support year-round recreation. And Mineral King is a subalpine glacial valley with a lower elevation of 7,400 feet with surrounding granite peaks rising to approximately 11,000 feet. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, The Disney company entered public bidding against five other organizations, and in December of that year, Disney won out and was awarded a three-year planning permit. The company spent $750,000 in research and planning, and in January 1969 received final approval of its developmental master plan. And Disney proposed spending $35 million to build a self-contained village, ski lifts, and overnight accommodations for year-round use. Um, But Walt knew, though, that the resort would offer plenty of daytime activities with skiing during the winter and hiking and camping during the warmer months. But he felt some sort of Disney entertainment was needed after the sun set. He believed that a show featuring bears fit in with the surroundings and would provide fun family entertainment. So he assigned the project to Mark Davis, who had been instrumental in developing characters for the Enchanted Tiki Room, Carousel of Progress, and Pirates of the Caribbean. 
So working with animator and storyman Albertino, Mark came up with a number of concepts, and one featured a bear marching band, another Dixieland bears, and even a bear mariachi band was considered. And one day in late 1966, Walt walked into Mark's office, took a look at some of his concept drawings, and told him that he loved the characters. And they laughed and talked for a while, and as Walt turned to leave, he uncharacteristically said goodbye, Mark, before walking out the door. This was the last time Mark ever saw Walt alive. A few days later, on December 15th, Walt Disney passed away. Now, as plans progressed, it was decided to give the bears a country western persona and feature them in the Mineral King Resort's Bear Band restaurant show. However, due to the government and legal red tape, the Mineral King project was ultimately abandoned. But the Imagineers decided the country bears would be a perfect fit for the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland. So Country Bear Jamboree was an opening day attraction at the Magic Kingdom. The presentation is housed in Grizzly Hall, which can hold approximately 350 guests. The original show ran just under 16 minutes. Now, on December 19, 1984, the Country Bear Christmas Special debuted in Grizzly Hall. And this show featured holiday songs, new outfits, and the replacement of Terrence, who's also known as Shaker, with a look-alike polar bear. And the show was presented each year from mid-November through early January. And then after a short rehab, the original Country Bear Jamboree show would return and play for the rest of the year. And Country Bear Christmas Special was the first interchangeable Disney theme park attraction, and that ran through 2005. And this, un- well, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> I never got the chance to see that because I don't think we had our first uh, Christmas trip until the, probably um, probably 2008 or so. Oh, and it, it was a very cute show. It was yeah, really well done. I've, I've listened to the soundtrack. I've watched videos. And mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things I just wish... I wish they would reinstate it. So it's it seems like such an easy change. And, you know, let's be real. People aren't knocking down the doors to get into Country Bear Jamboree. So why not? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, because they also ran it at Disneyland. So that's yes. where I primarily saw it. Yeah. So uh, it was something we always looked forward to. But wait, there was more. In the spring of 1986, the Country Bear Vacation Hoedown Show debuted at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. And this production featured the bears enjoying nature and the joys of summer travel. Uh, Most of the cast received new outfits and props that represented outdoor activities. Uh, Sammy, Henry's raccoon pal, was replaced by Randy the Skunk. Although the show was well-received, it failed to draw the same number of guests as the original show. So on February 1st, 1992, Vacation Hoedown was retired, and the original Country Bear Jamboree returned. Again, I wish they would add this show in in the summer and and just run all three shows. Yeah, no, know, I, I, I would love to see this one, too, because uh, I my first visit wasn't until after this was already completely gone but um you know a, a lot of the music including the the great outdoors was you know still being promoted everywhere 
um, on official albums, mm-hmm. on sing-alongs, stuff like that. So I, I knew I knew music from Vacation Hoedown without ever seeing the show. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and and the problem at Disneyland was that this this debuted and it ran and it never went away. It ultimately, oh. I think they switched it out a couple times, but finally it just stayed. And it was when they they knew that you know Country Bears just wasn't um, it, it just wasn't popular, so they just never bothered to switch it out again. Oh. And it and it never it just wasn't as strong a show as I think the the prime the main show yeah the hoedown was. It was cute and enjoyable, but it, it ran way too long at Disneyland. I did not so, know that. <laughs> Now, on August 21st, 2012, the Country Bear Jamboree was closed for a two-month refurbishment. And when the attraction reopened on October 17th, the show was noticeably shorter, and the bears had all received new fur, costumes, and props. The new sound systems and modernized backstage controls are supposed to give the Imagineers the ability to add seasonal changes more easily. The songs Pretty Little Devilish Mary and Fractured Folk Song were removed during the refurbishment, and much of the attraction's dialogue was cut. Um, The current version of the Country Bear Jamboree is now 11 minutes, or about one-third shorter than the original. So be sure to look down at the floor the next time you enter the lobby of Grizzly Hall. Are those claw marks? And look for a crate near Grizzly Hall labeled Davis Tobacco. This is a loving tribute to Imagineer and Disney legend Mark Davis. And if you look up, you'll, there's a very disturbing sight. Uh, a bunch of bear pelts hanging yeah. around <laughs> there. Which, uh, I don't know what the story is there. I guess, uh, you know, I guess it was performers that didn't quite um, cut it. But no, um, like what, do you think of, what do you think of the new version of Country Bear Chambery? You know what? Uh, of course, I'd prefer having uh, the the full version of it. Kind of like when we talked about uh, Tiki Room back in uh, the Adventureland episode, wanting the the full version of that too. But uh, I, I do have to say that Country Bears in the current state that it's in, it actually does flow very quickly and. It's just, you know, I I don't think there's any point that takes you out of the show. I mean, let's be real. If if you're not, uh, you know, after one song, if Country Bear Jamboree is going to be for you or not, you're either going to understand and appreciate the humor in it or you're just going to sit there wondering what the heck is going on. Um, I, I don't think there's a lot of middle ground of people who just kind of like it. I think it's it's one of those things you either love or hate and, you know, I I, I do think keeping it tight as it is now uh, it's, it adds a little bit more extra appeal uh, to it, to the general audience but, you know, I'd still, I'd prefer to have it longer, so... But that's just me. Yeah, no, I prefer the the longer. I miss the banter. It gave the bears personality, yeah. and you could sort of, you know, more. It gave them a lot more affection. Yeah. It and felt like a yeah. show. This is yeah. uh, kind of like a highlights reel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. But at least y- you still have them. 
I yeah. miss them. And what's funny is, yeah, they weren't very popular. I think they made a big mistake building two theaters for them at Disneyland in a remote corner of the park. They kept it at one theater. You know, they still would have seen the the numbers, perhaps. Yeah. But, um, and if they rotated the shows, I think that would have helped. But, you know, the funny thing is, it's we still have the characters at Disneyland. And, you know, we have the... At the, you know, we still have we have a restaurant named after them, and uh, we still have the we sell the jug, you know, yeah. at it the country bear jug. I mean, so th- th- I don't know. People don't even know who the characters are, but they're they're still there at Disneyland, yeah. even no, though the show's long gone. There's there's <laughs> still much more adoration for it. I do like that uh, here in Walt Disney World, the country bears are starting to to get a following. And it's starting to be revitalized, and people are starting to take notice and care about it again. But yeah, it's you know, it's that's just the bizarre differences between Walt Disney World and Disneyland is that your attraction has been gone for a long time now, replaced with a poo ride that doesn't need to exist. Country Bears should should still be back there, and then there's us that we have it and too many people just walk past thinking that it's some boring dumb kids show and it's it's so much more than that it is probably the funniest attraction on property Mm -hmm. uh oh yeah well all of mark davis's attractions are just terrific yeah so definitely worth seeing even in its abbreviated state oh i i make everyone i know go into it so mm-hmm. it's oh, Carol and I always a, go to it. You have to. Um, mm-hmm. I would I would sit in there over and over again for a couple shows in a row if I was allowed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just a terrific little show. So and the, and the figures are really well done. So yeah, uh, no, no. It's the, the only thing they need to do is every once in a while, I feel like Imagineering needs to go in and actually listen to the audio mix. Because every time they fix it, it seems like it's fine for a couple months, and then it just it, it the the mix just goes away again, hmm. and some characters are quieter than others. I mean, the same thing happens in the in the tiki room as well too. So they just need it. It needs a little bit more love here and there, but other than that, mm-hmm. it's just it, it's such a perfect Disney attraction. Mm-hmm. Now, north of Grizzly Hall is Rivers of America, which passes through Frontierland and Liberty Square. The Rivers of America were once home to two riverboats, the Admiral Joe Fowler and the Richard F. Irvine, the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes, the Mike Finn Keelboats, and the Rafts to Tom Sawyer Island. Now, we'll talk about the riverboats when we explore Liberty Square, since they are attractions assigned to that land. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes closed in 1994. At one time, guests could paddle around the rivers of America in the 35-foot canoes for a sea ticket. The canoe dock was located to the north of the Tom Sawyer Island Raft Launch. Um, One of my favorite attractions at Disneyland was the Mike Finn Keelboats. They were so popular that the Mike Finn Keelboats were an opening day B-picket B-ticket attraction at the Magic Kingdom. And this attraction was based on the boats featured in two enormously popular Disneyland television shows. Davy Crockett's Keelboat Race, which was broadcast on November 16, 1955, 
and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates broadcast on December 14th, 1955. And in the first show, after a season of trapping, Davy and Georgie Russell want to take their furs downriver to New Orleans in their keelboat, the Bertha May. But they're thwarted by Mike Fink. And a challenge race pits the two against each other, with the furs as the prize against um, Fink eating his hat. Um, Despite unfair maneuvers by Fink on the gully wumper, Davy wins. The second show had Davy and Mike Fink teaming up to solve a river mystery and expose a band of river pirates. Both shows were later combined into a feature film, and a keelboat attraction premiered at Disneyland in late 1955. The keelboat boarding dock at the Magic Kingdom was to the left of the Haunted Mansion entrance, and the boats were named Gollywumpa and Bertha May, just like in the Davy Crockett shows. And after leaving the dock, the free-floating motorized boats would sail around Tom Sawyer Island to view scenery around the rivers of America. And the keelboat's captains, um, Hilarious and Corny Spiel, rivaled the Jungle Cruise skippers. And the keelboats came in handy during one of the preview days before the Magic Kingdom opened in 1971. Um, During preview days, only three monorails were in service, so any watercraft that could transport guests from the transportation and ticket center to the Magic Kingdom were put into service, and this included one of the keelboats, which, when you hear the later, (laughs) what I have to say later on, it's a little scary that they used this keelboat to go back and forth across the lagoon. Keep in mind there were no buses going to the Magic Kingdom in those days, so um, you really were limited as to how to get to the Magic Kingdom. Um, the old keelboat loading dock is still at the Magic Kingdom near the Liberty Square, um, you know, smoking area and the former Haunted Mansion Fast Pass, um, you know, distribution area. Um, in the in the middle of the Rivers of America is a man-made Tom Sawyer Island, and although the island was present on the opening day of the Magic Kingdom, it did not um, open to guests until May twentieth, nineteen seventy three. Um, to get to the island, guests take log rafts named Tom Sawyer, Injun Joe, and Becky Thatcher over to Tom's Landing. And these rafts are free-floating, and it takes a lot of skill to maneuver those rafts. Yeah. Yeah, and on the island, one feels a sense of isolation and freedom you know, from the controlled chaos of the Magic Kingdom as they freely explore treehouses, bounce on the pontoon bridges, climb through Harper's Mill, explore the dark caverns of Injun Joe's caves, and wander through Fort Langhorn, where children of all ages can protect the uh, island with toy guns, or just relax on a rocking chair and enjoy a game of checkers. Now... Tom Sawyer Island is um, is fairly unchanged since uh, June of 1973, with just a few exceptions. Um, when the island opened, the fort was named Fort San Clemens. In 1996, the name was changed to Fort Langhorn, as a reference to Mark Twain's real name, Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Except the interesting thing is the fort drops the E at the end of Langhorn. Uh, Mark Twain spelled his middle name with an E. Um, anyway, so um, 
uh, the Explorer maps are no longer handed out at the entrance, although a number of metal versions have been placed around the island so that you don't get lost. Uh, six paintbrushes used to be hidden by cast members around Tom Sawyer Island daily, and guests who found them could redeem them for a small prize. And in the early years, it, it could be an attraction ticket, and later it was usually a fast pass. After years of sporadic service, Aunt Polly's refreshments closed for good, and its sign was removed in 2001. In the early years, it sold cold sandwiches and soda and later expanded to items like potato salad and cold fried chicken. Vending machines were installed at one point. Cold snacks and beverages have been sold occasionally over the years. Um, The cantina in the fort no longer sells frozen lemonade. And the fun and unique Spinning Rocks playground was removed a few years after an off-the-shelf playground designed to look like a salvaged fort was constructed on the island called Scavenger's Fort. And the backstory for that is, is that it was built by Tom and Huck. Um, and here's a couple of fun facts. Unlike Disneyland's Fort Wilderness that stood on Tom Sawyer Island until 2007, when it was torn down because its wood had deteriorated, Fort Langhorn is made out of fiberglass. And inside Harper's Mill, um, look for two tributes to Walt Disney's 1937 Silly Symphony, uh, The Old Mill. The large horizontal gear in the middle is home to a little bluebird that made her nest between the cogs. Also keep an eye out for the old owl in the uh, rafters. So do you, do you um, go on to uh, Tom Sawyer Island at all? Yeah, actually pretty often. Um Tom Sawyer Island, I, it's been one of those things that I've loved ever since I was a kid. Uh, you know, there's something about taking the rafts over there and getting lost on the island, which, you know, now as an adult is impossible to do. But back when you're a kid, it just seems like the biggest, biggest area in the world. And then going through the caves and just feeling like you're never going to come out of them and that you can truly just get you know get get lost and um and you know like that too again being an adult now the the only problem with the caves is realizing that sometimes i just can't fit width wide going (laughs) through um the area but i still I, i love going around i love going into the fort and um I, I love taking pictures with the the fake guns and cannons in the windows pointing out at Big Thunder Mountain, um, seeing the animatronics that are inside the the fort. I mean, there's just so many little hidden details that people don't really pay attention to because, you know, they go over there and they walk around really quickly and just kind of they're okay with that once they make the the lap around they go over the barrel bridge uh they're they're pretty much good to go and it's a shame but um no i just the only thing i wish they would do is i wish aunt polly's would come back into to full service because that used to be one of my family's uh, favorite places to to have a meal way back when when we'd come in the 90s because there's plenty of seating there you just relax i remember eating peanut butter sandwiches out on Mm -hmm. there and it's just a a lot of good memories from tom sawyer island 
Yeah, I I remember when yeah when Aunt Polly's was open and I, I just loved it. I I liked how expansive Tom Sawyer Island was at the Magic Kingdom compared to the more intimate Disneyland. Yeah, one. No, the first I, I've only done Disneyland once. Um, thank goodness I got it in before uh, it was before it's now been overrun off. by pirates exactly. oh yeah and then well, chopped off yeah yeah I, I never did it before it was overrun by pirates but um you know now now that it's altered i i got to see it once and you know it it was it was, it was charming at the same time the coolest part <laughs> of disneyland's is going and standing on the phantasmic stage and mm-hmm. realizing what what an amazing show takes place right under your feet but uh, other than that, yeah, our yeah. our Tom Sawyer Island in the Magic Kingdom is just it's it is such a cool little area. It is. It's it's. I love it. It's great. Now, talking again about some of the the craft on the the rivers of America. Uh, the reason the Mike Finn keelboats closed at the Magic Kingdom on April two thousand and one. It's probably related to an incident that happened at Disneyland in 1997. At about 5.30 p.m. on May 17th, 1997, the uh, Disneyland Gullywumper um, boat began to rock side to side. It was, uh, it had been um, loaded to overcapacity um, by, I, th- I think it's, I, f- I forget what it was. Its capacity was like, let's say, f- I think it was about 46. And it was, um, I think it was loaded up to about 54 people. And it capsized. And so it dumped a full boatload of passengers into the rivers of America. There were several minor injuries. So the boat was removed from water for inspection. And the Gullywumper and Bertha May, uh, they did return for the next operating season. But um, they ultimately uh, they were closed and and never came back. Yeah. So um, they closed it in 1994, and um, they came back in March 1996. But um, ultimately, that was the end. Of the, they they then were closed permanently after that. And the Magic Kingdom's keelboats, like I said, ran continuously until they closed in April 2001. But uh, and I I loved the keelboats. Like I said, that was one of my favorite attractions. Like the Jungle Cruise. Yeah, I, it was. I, I think the coolest thing about that is I I know I did them and I have I have the memories of being on them. Um, and because I I didn't know what they were from, but then uh, the the first time that I watched um, the keelboat race and River Pirates. That's when I was. I finally put it together. Like, oh, those those are those boats. So that I remember going on at Walt Disney World. So uh, they they are very missed. Yeah, and the thing is, the Disneyland ones were the ones from the television show. They were actually from the television. They were show? actually from the television that show. That is so cool. Yeah, and so, but but now when you think about how wobbly they were, the, the that they went across the lagoon. From the ticket and transportation center that one of them did over to the Magic Kingdom on preview days, that's that's amazing. It's <laughs> good for them. Yeah, really, 
Guests took their first wildest ride in the wilderness on the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad in the Magic Kingdom on November 15th, 1980. And as we've mentioned in this and previous episodes, the Magic Kingdom opened without a Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. And this was because the designers believed pirate lore was so much a part of Florida's history. And because the Caribbean was just a short cruise away, guests wouldn't be drawn to the attraction as they were in Disneyland. Instead, as part of the next phase of the Magic Kingdom, they would receive the largest attraction to ever be built in a Disney theme park, Thunder Mesa. Now, you may remember in a previous episode, we talked about Walt Disney's plan for Riverboat Square in St. Louis. One of the attractions conceived for Riverboat Square by Imagineer Mark Davis was the Lewis and Clark River Expedition. Walt wasn't sold on the attraction's name, and he toyed with the idea of naming it the Western River Expedition. So when the Riverboat Square project fell through, Mark Davis moved on to designing attractions for Walt Disney World. Now, the executive vice president of WED, um, Richard Irvine, challenged the Imagineers to come up with an idea for an attraction like Pirates of the Caribbean, but with a completely different theme. So Mark brought out his Lewis and Clark uh, River um, Expedition attraction. And like Pirates, this was designed to be a boat ride taking guests past Western scenes that, in, in rather than Caribbean scenes that would use cutting-edge audio-animatronic figures. Now, the show building required for the attraction would be so large, it would be visible throughout the Western side of the Magic Kingdom. So to hide the show building, Mark proposed designing it to look like a mesa with an Indian village, hiking trails, and a mule ride. Rather than rerouting the Walt Disney World Railroad around the show building, Mark's design had the train go through the building as part of the attraction. Now, Dick Nunes pointed out, that if they went ahead with this project, it would mean delaying other projects, such as Space Mountain. So Dick and the Imagineers believed the Imagic Kingdom needed a thrill ride, like Disneyland's Matterhorn. And I know um, Marty Scalar um, said that that was like the the mortal sin of planning the uh, Magic Kingdom, was that they didn't have a thrill ride attraction yeah. in, in, in the original design. So Dick and the Imagineers believed um, you know, that they had to have this thrill ride, so that Mark then incorporated a high-speed thrill ride into the attraction, a runaway mine train that would speed around and down the Mesa. Um, named Big Thunder Mesa, this massive Mark Davis attraction would have housed the Western River Expedition, the Walt Disney World Railroad, an Indian village with Native American dancers and vendors, hiking trails, um, a burrow ride, a mule ride, and a runaway mine train roller coaster. Now, this sounds incredible, doesn't it? So why wasn't it built? A couple of events knocked down Big Thunder Mesa. Firstly, when the Magic Kingdom opened without the Pirates of the Caribbean, the guest outcry was immediate. It was so persistent, the Magic Kingdom's version of Pirates of the Caribbean was given approval to be constructed in an area of the park not planned for an attraction of this size. So when the smaller and slightly redesigned version opened in 1973, there was less of a need for the Western River Expedition attraction. 
Then came the oil embargo and gas shortage of the early 1970s, which resulted in a decline in attendance at Walt Disney World. Pirates of the Caribbean and and an estimated 15% attendance um, drop that resulted in the significant fall in the value of Disney stock caused um, Disney executives to institute extreme cost-cutting measures, which included putting Big Thunder Mesa on an indefinite hold. By mid-1974, the energy crisis was waning, and Walt Disney Productions president Card Walker looked to resurrecting projects that had been put on hold or to just outright cancel them. So during a tour of WED with Richard Irvine and other Disney executives, Walker saw this dazzling model of Thunder Mesa built by a young Imagineer named Tony Baxter. Now, Tony had been working with Mark Davis on developing Thunder Mesa, and they had not agreed on the runaway mine train attraction portion of Thunder Mesa. Tony believed he could make the runaway mine train attraction more beautiful entertaining and dramatic, whilst Mark Davis saw the mine train as a secondary attraction to his Western River Expedition attraction. So Mark would not approve any of Tony's ideas for enhancing the mine train attraction. When Walker, Irvine, and other Disney executives complimented Tony Baxter on the model, he didn't respond very enthusiastically. So when pressed, Baxter explained the flaws with the mine train portion and how he believed it could be improved. So Walker was not only impressed with Baxter's description of this thrilling, suspenseful runaway mine train, he also realized this may be the answer to the Magic Kingdom's need for another thrill ride that would be significantly less expensive than Thunder Mesa. So Walker asked, Baxter to design some plans for a proposed standalone runaway mine train attraction. In the end, the Big Thunder Mountain Railway was approved for the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland, and Mark Davis's Thunder Mesa was put on permanent hold. However, this did not mean we would not see at least glimpses of Thunder Mesa in future attractions. And Craig and I will talk about that and more when we present an episode of Connecting with Walt devoted to Big Thunder Mesa. So Craig, have, have, are you at all familiar with B- Mark Davis's Big Thunder Mesa? Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of the concept art and looked at the plans for it. And um, this is one of the things that I, I wish someone could travel back in time and tell them that they need to put this forward. Don't worry about pirates. You know, people would have gotten over that eventually and mm-hmm. just put put Thunder Mesa on the fast track. Um, I, I, I wish they could still find a way to incorporate it. I love our big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Um, I, I love the look of it, everything about it, but just the the idea the vision for thunder thunder mesa it's it's such a shame it didn't get to see the light of day Mm -hmm. i I think another thing that might have 
killed it is that it, when you, you've seen the concept art, you know how the, the caricatures of the cowboys, but also of the Native Americans, yeah. they're very similar to the stylings of the Peter Pan yeah. Indians. And I, I, I think we had um, already by this time, the, the Western genre was no longer as popular in in american culture i mean it there were no longer the the plethora of television shows were done the films were pretty much coming to an end yeah uh, um and also things like um the incident at wounded knee yeah were bringing the plight of the native americans on their reservations really uh, into the public's notice so the whole romanticism of the american west um was getting lost. So I, I think that also helped with the... Um, I think it helped bring down Thunder Mesa. Oh, yeah, no, it's... It, and, I mean, you... like Just like you said, um, you know, you, you stop seeing movies about it. Um, mm-hmm. It just kind of disappeared. And um, that's... There's kind of a, a culture going around right now that is trying to revitalize the western and bring it back and they've made they've made some really great attempts in uh in the the past 10 years or so of trying to revitalize the western with you know uh, the remake of 310 to yuma and uh other movies like appaloosa but even still to this day uh you know, Hollywood in general is fighting a battle with the Western. Some people mm-hmm. really love it, dying to see it. I'm I'm in that realm, so I, I can just flat out say that I am biased on that. I I, I love the idea of the Wild West. It just mm-hmm. it, it appeals to me. Um, but yeah, it's the the greater public, and you know, especially with the amount of tourists that come to Florida that are not from that are not from the United States even um, some of this stuff could definitely get lost on them so mm-hmm. makes sense yeah yeah and uh, you know I definitely if it existed it would have to be um, definitely we would we probably would have seen it redressed or changed up somehow yeah, I would say so. probably a little bit more realism instead of uh, the you know even though it was headed up by Mark Davis I think they would have had to try to find a way to to add that realism in and save some political correctness with the characters <laughs> yeah yeah now big thunder mountain railroad was dedicated on november 15th 1980 and it is based on the disneyland version which opened on september 12th 1979 now disneyland's version is designed after the rounded and muted features of bryce canyon in utah to help it blend in with the sight lines from fantasyland um, the magic kingdom version is based on monument valley arizona and its footprint is 25% larger than Disneyland's. And the track is a mirror image to the Disneyland version. Now, the attraction's backstory is set in the Gold Rush boom and bust town of Tumbleweed. And 20 audio animatronic figures, including chickens, goats, possums, and the rainmaker Professor Cumulus Isobar, populate the attraction. Now, to lend authenticity to the scenes, antique mining equipment, including an ore crusher, a mining flume, and an ore hauling wagon, have been incorporated into the attraction. 
And 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 we've seen a few changes come through this um, during time. And like Disneyland's got a a whole new ending, and it sort of changed the backstory a little of uh, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Yeah. And and you got and I they've installed that ending also in uh, the Magic Kingdom's version as well, haven't they? No, they did not. They, they didn't. They, oh, I thought they were going to. They were. They were going to, but um, they did not end up doing that during the last refurb. They just did some minor, minor adjustments and stuff. So the last major refurb um, was adding the additional backstory into the queue, and um, you know, as everyone likes to wonder as they're walking through the queue like the the portrait of tony baxter mm-hmm. and some of the more interactive elements um in the queue but yeah no we didn't we did not get the changes unfortunately but oh, hey okay. that makes disneyland's more special well and i like then that that we have the original backstory at the magic kingdom and then we have the slightly altered one at um you know, at Disneyland. Yeah. So, so that is, so that's neat. I, I like that kind of thing where, where each attraction is just a little different. They each have something to offer to mm-hmm. justify making the trips. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. The next new attraction to be built once again has its birth in the Mark Davis, Tony Baxter, Thunder Mesa dispute. Mark was bitter that Tony's ideas for enhancing the runaway mine train attraction had put Thunder Mesa on permanent hold. Notice Thunder Mesa was never canceled. Yeah. It has remained on permanent hold. Um, Tony Baxter truly respected Mark Davis and his work. So he felt terrible that he had inadvertently hurt Mark and his Thunder Mesa project. So as the story goes... In 1983, Tony Baxter stuck in traffic on the Santa Ana Freeway on his way to the Imagineering offices in Glendale. He begins thinking about all the discussions he's been having with Dick Nunes, who this time is the president of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, about the problems with Country Bear Jamboree not bringing guests into bear country, Nunes's insistence on adding a flume ride to the Disney parks, and to come up with a replacement for Tomorrowland's America Sings, which was the last attraction to be designed by Mark Davis, and is considered by many to be some of his finest work. Now, after his role in an inadvertently derailing Thunder Mesa, Baxter wanted to have nothing to do with closing America Sings. Although Tony knew it was time for that attraction to close because of low guest attendance, he got to thinking the audio-animatronic figures really didn't belong in Tomorrowland, but was more suited for Frontierland or Bear Country. But by the time Baxter arrived at Imagineering, he had an idea for a flume ride in Bear Country, reusing Mark Davis's audio-animatronic figures from America Sings. So Tony teamed up with Imagineers Bruce Gordon and John Stone and designed an attraction based on the Disney film Song of the South called Zippity-Dee River Run. And Michael Eisner would later insist the attraction name be changed. (laughs) You can learn more about the history of this attraction by listening to my 60 Years of Disneyland series on the Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. Now, Disneyland Splash Mountain opened in July 1999 and the Magic Kingdoms in October 1992. The mountain, also known as Chickapin Hill, 
and its terraced red earth slopes are reminiscent of the film Song of the South. The saturated colors of the design are based on those created for the film by Imagineer Claude Coates and Disney artist Mary Blair. Now, both the Disneyland and Magic Kingdom attractions have their similarities and differences. On both attractions, you follow the story of Br'er Rabbit and his attempt to escape from Br'er Fox. The attempt results in Br'er Fox throwing Br'er Rabbit and the guests down the waterfall into the briar patch. They both have intense drops, but one is more intense than the other. The Magic Kingdom version has special effects, such as Br'er Rabbit hopping away, and a Disneyland ride does not have such audio-animatronic figures. A Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain is typically wetter than the Magic Kingdom's. The Magic Kingdom's version moves a little slower through the scenes than Disneyland's does. And Disneyland's final drop is sharper and a bit more of an angle. And the Magic Kingdom's guests enjoy a much longer queue with Br'er Fox, uh, Br'er Frog, providing a bit of a backstory as you wait. And I think the Magic Kingdom's storyline is a bit easier to understand than the original Disneyland version. I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, so are the is Splash Mountain one of your must-do? Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. No, that's. Um, you know the. The the only problem I have with Splash Mountain is just how popular it actually is. Um, it it makes it very difficult to uh, on the days that I come over. Like you have to you have to really plan it and get a fast pass for it because I I, I don't think Disney ever could have truly planned for Splash Mountain to be the hit that it ended up being. Um, and just everything about it the 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 style of the ride the the animatronics in it using the characters from song of the south just breeding that giving extra life into song of the south even though the movie unless you watch a, a old copy of it that you downloaded illegally on the internet or gets posted on youtube um you know it just it it, it just gives life to that and mm-hmm. it it has become its own thing uh beyond all of it it's 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 a great ride um oh, it, yeah. it really is yeah it is a brilliant concept and uh i love it i just i don't like getting wet and then walking the rest of the day so i haven't and i agree that magic kingdoms you do get less wet so i'm more prone to go on yeah. that one oh yeah no disneyland <laughs> disneyland i I do it like one out of every three trips now, just because I know how miserable I'm going to be if I actually get on there, uh, because I have never walked off that ride without being completely soaked, uh, yeah. no matter where I sit in there. Whereas, you know, Walt Disney World, it, it literally depends. You can sit in the front row and walk away with only drops on you mm-hmm. if the boat's loaded, um, loaded very back heavy. It just, it you never know, but... No, this was before I, I moved on here. I would say that this was probably, uh, probably my favorite ride uh, yeah. at Walt Disney World. Just mm. it's it's such a special ride. I still love it. It's one of those attractions that I can just stand outside of, watch the logs go down, and just just relax and enjoy that. 
Yeah, and you're right. It, it proved to be another popular addition to the Disney Mountain Rage range. And and since this is a Disney story, of course, this ends with Mark Davis being so happy with Tony Baxter saving his America Sinks characters that he forgives, you know, Tony Baxter for Thunder Mesa. However, <laughs> this is not how that story ends. Um, Davis was reportedly furious with Baxter for closing America Sings, despite its low attendance and millions more guests being able to see his cutting-edge audio-animatronic figures on Splash Mountain. So so that story does not end happily ever after. Yeah, but um, <laughs> that was... <laughs> the funny part is that... Um, at Star Wars Celebration that just happened recently at the Disney Parks panel when they were talking about uh, about Star Tours, they already started mentioning how uh, when that was being developed that the, they ran into America Sings and just started pulling out animatronics to they use in took, the Star Tours queue. So. Yeah, they took two geese yep, out. Yep, yeah. and they made so, them the it, goose droids in there. And so, it, you know, Mark Davis should have saw this coming, that they already started picking apart the attraction before it was closed. Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny. There, there's a lot of video of America Sings on you know on YouTube. Yeah, and, and depending upon which year you watch it, you can you'll start to see um, missing characters, you know? <laughs> and and you'll see the you'll see the geese. They go they go down in number. But the problem is is that um, they never change the audio. So a couple <laughs> of the singing geese actually had singing roles, and. Um, you you they don't sing <laughs> oh i know what a, i'm doing for the rest of my night now <laughs> so um anyway but um yeah so 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 yeah i i think i think i think really to save those characters is um it was wonderful i'm glad yeah. that we still have mark davis you know with us at disneyland there yeah i so, agree now, on the um, northeastern side of Frontierland, guests enter Liberty Square, a historically themed land unique to the Magic Kingdom, but it was first proposed for Disneyland. And that is where Craig and I will take you next time in our July season of Connecting with Walt. So, so Craig, how did you like our ride through Frontierland? I enjoyed the ride all the way, so I, I, I just hope that this will inspire people to look at to look at Frontierland as something more than just a passageway to get back to Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Mountain, or I guess even a, a passageway to get to Pecos Bill, depending on what you uh, what you get out of your. Uh, frontier land but it's just it, it's such a special place and there's literally every attraction that's in there is just a complete gem from tom sawyer island to country bear jamboree to to splash and big thunder and i can't even forget about the shooting gallery which mm-hmm. is still there and um you know i just have so many fond memories of uh waiting when the main street electrical parade made it's uh come back in uh the late 90s uh early 2000 i guess i was right around 2000 when it came back over to to walt disney world or whenever that was and i i just remember always sitting and waiting for that parade but 
being at the shooting gallery uh, because that's that's something that my dad did at Disneyland when he went as a kid is went up to the shooting gallery there so uh, I yeah there's just something super special about Frontierland and I I hope we shed a little extra light on it and other people take that away too if they maybe you know just thought it was the place to go for thrill rides mm-hmm. yeah I, and I, I I really like the Frontierland area in Magic Kingdom. I just like that wide expanse. I always, I'm always partial to the area, that whole Rivers of America area in both parks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Disneyland as well as Walt Disney World. And, um, you know, because I, I, it, it has less of a theme park feel. Yeah. I think, it, I think its expansive, expansiveness gives it a, a little more of a relaxed feel, much more so in the Magic Kingdom than at Disneyland. Yeah. Well, because it, Disneyland is, is a little more compact. Yeah, and it's like you said, too, that, you know, with the transportation, even though we're down to just riverboat, it, it does feel like it's on the move. It has this energy about it that, you know, like Fantasyland doesn't have. And, um, and really Adventureland doesn't have it either. So, you know, our Tomorrowland still has it a bit with the mm-hmm. with the TTA traveling up and over your head. But um, yeah, it just it, it there's something that is living about Frontierland. It's it's very underrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Since the World Began, Walt Disney World, The First 25 Years by Jeff Curdy, The Hidden Magic of Walt Disney World by Susan Vaness, Walt Disney World, The First Decade by Walt Disney Productions, Tony Baxter, First of the Second Generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien. Also, I found a number of articles on websites uh, that were helpful, including Disneyology, Dissecting Disneyland's Frontierland, Widen Your World. Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce this one. Salive.com, <laughs> Allears.net, Walt Dated World, Disney Park History, and Jim Hill Media. And I'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her invaluable work locating the additional material I needed for this episode. And if you'd like to learn more about the Mineral King Project, we'll have a link to my blog in our show notes, uh, Mineral King, Walt Disney's Last Lost Project. And for more information about Walt Disney and the 1960 Winter Olympics, we'll have a link to my history episode on the Disney Unplugged Podcast, Disneyland Edition. Well, this brings us to the end of our April season for 2017. Um, Craig, I hope you have enjoyed our connections with Walt over the last few weeks. And, um, and that we hope you will join us again in July. But you don't have to wait until July to hear from us again. Craig and I are looking forward to seeing you at the Diz 20th Anniversary Mega Meet at Walt Disney World to celebrate the birthday of the Diz on June 1st. Craig, do you want to tell our listeners just a bit about this this tiny little shindig we're throwing? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> they still have a little bit of time to sign up and get ready for it but uh essentially yeah it's all going to culminate in a giant party on the night of june 1st uh three hours in epcot 
after the park is closed and we will be uh, having unlimited access to the seas with Nemo and friends, uh, Soren test track and journey into your imagination, um, along with a private viewing of illuminations and a private concert for just our guest um, with Jody Benson, who of course is the the voice of Ariel in the Little Mermaid, and you know there'll be some food and music. Uh, it's it's going to be uh, the perfect lead up, or it's it's going to be the perfect way to celebrate twenty years of the Diz. And uh, throughout the week leading up to it, we'll have small events um, that uh, we'll have hopefully by the time this is out if not then soon after we'll have a little bit more information on some of the events that'll happen i'm sure michael and i are going to get together at some point and uh have a meetup where we can meet everyone out there who who loves connecting with Walt or just us in general <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh yes. you know we'll get to talk maybe share some stories and uh, ride an attraction or two who knows mm-hmm. who knows what'll happen but uh, it, there's going to be lots of lots of great things going on so uh you know if you're if you're planning on being down in Florida uh now is now's the time to get into it because it is going to be a heck of a time and that'll be from uh the officially the dates are from the 29th of may until june 2nd so mm-hmm. uh we'll both be there and we are yeah. i know we're both looking forward to it oh yeah it's it's um going to be very exciting i'm really excited for it so yes and and then even though this is the big disney event of the year the, our 20th anniversary there's another little disney thing going on on the other side of the country and that's the d23 expo next door to disneyland in anaheim from july 14th through the 16th and craig and i and a, a lot other of your friends from the Diz are also going to be there as well so I don't know, Craig. Is there anything you want to say about that? I yeah, know we're just, quite a bit off from it. Yeah, yeah we're still a bit off, but uh, we will have a uh, booth space um, in the in the expo center. So uh, we'll be primarily using that to uh, have live, up to date coverage, uh, being able to go out live with video. Uh, video segments um, right after we're doing a lot of the excellent panels. So if you watched our coverage from the 2015 Expo, uh, expect more of that uh, this July. And uh, yeah, so it's it's going to be a good time. So uh, we'll have more details as it gets closer to that. Um, that obviously we won't really be able to promote too much in the show because I believe we will only have like one episode go out before the <laughs> the start of D23 Expo the 2017 so uh, you'll just have to make sure you're also following uh, the Diz Unplugged and the Diz on all of our social media channels that we have out there mm-hmm. yeah definitely and speaking of which so Craig where where, where else can um, our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows well, of course, you can find me uh, Tuesdays on the Disney World Edition, um, Thursdays on the Universal Edition, uh, then basically every Diz Pop episode right now. <laughs> um, connecting with Walt when that's on the Daily Fix, and uh, you know, 
every vlog we do i'm all over the place it's throw a rock and if you don't hit me then that is the bigger surprise um and then of course you can always follow me on twitter at teleclaster and you know i just said follow along with the Diz on social media for updates leading up to the d23 expo that by following me that is also a really great place to do so because um this has been on my calendar now for i think longer than anything else um since they have announced the dates it is it is what i am looking forward to so much Mm uh this year so i am very excited about it and i will be just sharing my enthusiasm for it up until the event and i'm sure every single second of it Oh yeah, yeah. I the expos. It's 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 a lot of controlled chaos, but it is so much fun. Yeah. No, it's and, it's become it's, something I look forward to now every two years. Um, you know the the first the first time I went out for it, it was just asking Pete at the last second. I, I think literally two weeks before the event, maybe even a week, saying, "Hey, we should we should really try to have some video coverage this year instead of just Tom." Uh, Tom and Michael going and just by themselves and doing it for that and uh, you know sending me out there and getting to hang out with you guys for mm-hmm. a whirlwind three days and seeing how seeing the amazing things we did that year in 2013 seeing how we took it to the next level in 2015 and um, you know it's just it's become this tradition that's uh, you know this this show might not be around without it too so <laughs> it's it, it, a lot of great things around it so mm-hmm. i love it yeah looking forward to it and you can find me every sunday night on the Disney plug podcast disneyland edition with my good friends tom bell nancy johnson mary joe mulata willie and tony spatel where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. Be sure to listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time, and you can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disneyunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. When Craig, I got a message from a listener who wants to know, how does he leave positive reviews and ratings on iTunes? Do, can you give us a little primer on how to do that? Well, um, you just have to have an iTunes account, um, which you shouldn't be able to download the podcast anyways, unless you're downloading them direct from our <laughs> site. Um, but yeah, as long as you, uh, as long as you have um, an iTunes account and you... Uh, you, you go to our podcast and you're subscribed um, there is a uh, there's a little um, a little circle that has like three dots on it and that is where you can do stuff like uh, you can give a rating you can um, you can delete our podcast from your feet if you really you want don't to want i to don't do that. i don't recommend that <laughs> um but yeah that, that's where you're able to do uh, all all that fun stuff so it's it's 
pretty pretty easy once you you're looking around from that um and you, you figure figure it out from there so okay all righty yeah sorry i probably should have told you told you i was gonna hit you with that question it just popped <laughs> into my head <laughs> thank nah, you it, it, it's all good you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes we take for granted things that we don't we don't think about it mm-hmm. so i understand yeah. And you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, which is where I got that question, about, <laughs> I think. Um, Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm at michaelbowling. And I, right now, I still have two pages. You want to go to the one that um, has has the Connecting with Walt logo on it and also has uh, sort of this Disney doodle of the Disneyland podcast crew. I will um, make sure to switch that over because I believe I still have people going to your old page in the show uh, notes. Okay, I've been getting a lot of friend requests on the old one. So, and I'm sooner or later that one is going to um I'm going to I'm going to have that one be my family and close friends page yeah. and all that <laughs> and my friends who aren't into Disney. <laughs> anyway, so you want to go to the other one. Um, and Instagram, I'm at mbowling, Michael Bowling, the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. 